Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And in this week's episode, we will discuss Chapter 8 of Prisoner of Azkaban, Flight of the Fat Lady. And to help us with today's discussion, we're joined by one of our Slug Club patrons today, Ashley. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining. Extra special thank you because you're up in Alaska where it's a little after 7 a.m., so we appreciate you getting up early to be on the pod. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't look good for anybody who like gets used to on social, but I'm here. So. You look great. What are you <laughs> yeah. talking about? Let's get your fandom ID. Yeah, so um, my fandom ID, my favorite book is Half-Blood Prince. Uh, my favorite chapter is actually from my least favorite book. Uh, so it is Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 14, Percy and Padfoot. And that is a little bit complicated. So that chapter has the quote, the world isn't split into Death Eaters and... Uh, like good people and death eaters, which becomes the movieism of we've all got light and dark inside of us. What matters is the part we choose to act on. That's who we really are. And I have a full sleeve tattoo based on that quote. So that gets a little bit complicated because I hate the book otherwise. Uh, <laughs> favorite movie is Half Blood Prince. Uh, I am a Hufflepuff. My Patronus is a Chow Chow, which I hate. And my favorite Hogsmeade shop is Scribble Shaft's um, Quill Shop. Seems like you have a real love-hate relationship with Potter. (laughs) Yeah. I I am much like you guys. I criticize because I care. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Nice. nice. That makes you a perfect addition to the panel today. We asked about your favorite Hogsmeade shop because they head off to Hogsmeade. Well, everybody but Harry uh, in today's chapter. And yeah, let's revisit this tattoo. So you said you have a full sleeve tattoo. Listeners, we'll post it on social media. Ashley very kindly sent some photos. But panel, isn't this beautiful? My goodness. I am obsessed. The work is so beautiful and there's so much here. I mean, we have the doe, we have the whomping willow, we have the dark mark. Like, there's just so much going on in this piece. It's beautiful. How long did this work take, Ashley? About 20 hours. Yeah, I'm sure. Woo! How many sessions? Two days? Two Two days. Wow. Two days. Two 10-hour sessions. Ashley, I find your your tattoo is very nice, but I also just Google image to chow chow. How could you hate? That beautiful face. Add the chow chow to the tattoo. How chow chow? Everybody was like, why did you not get your own? I was like, I'm not getting a chow chow tattooed on my arm. I'm just not doing it, guys. They're adorable. Oh, my God. Uh, They are. I was really upset the first time we lived in Alaska. My husband, his Patronus became a salmon. And I was like, that's just not even fair. Like, that's cool as an Alaskan. And I got a chow chow. (laughs) it's not an otter it's not like it's it's just it's a breed of dog i was disappointed well thank you ashley for sharing that and sharing your fandom id and for your support on patreon for a really long time we really appreciate it and we should also mention i feel like we do need to mention this from time to time eric actually has a muggle cast tattoo for any maybe newer listeners oh yeah yeah we'll dig up uh we'll dig up an old photo or maybe chloe can take a um it's, a there it is right on the arm Hang on. yep uh washed out come on not full sleeve but taking up a few inches on on his uh right arm are you gonna get a chow chow just below the I'll get a chow chow on the the other arm's empty so i'll get a perfect a <laughs> with a little heart ashley on somebody, it. Should. <laughs> yeah. somebody should somebody should 
Well, actually, speaking of our Patreon, available now at patreon.com slash MuggleCast, we have a new bonus MuggleCast installment in which we discuss how the Harry Potter TV show could appeal more to adults since it will be on HBO Max, which tends to skew towards adult audiences. There was actually some disagreement in the discussion on if they really even need to do that. We are now releasing two bonus MuggleCast installments every month on Patreon, so do check it out. I think we're going to do a little theme park expansion update later this month because there's some news there to share. And now, without further ado, let's jump into chapter by chapter. And this week, we're discussing chapter eight, Flight of the Fat Lady. And we will start with our seven word summary. And I thought... Eric, go ahead. Micah, you were so rudely interrupted last week. I'm so sorry about that, by the way. Otherwise, a really good it's episode, okay. but I, I bungled. I would have edited it out, but people like really enjoyed it when they were listening live, so we kept parts of it in. Um, it was Thank a you. fun show moment. It happens, whatever. But I thought, Micah, you should get to kick things off this week. So here we go. Teachers... Oh, come on, Micah. Um, <laughs> uh, forbid. Harry. From. Going. To. Hogsmeade. <laughs> yes. We did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we that, did it. Look, it's a team effort. It might seem like a simple sentence, but doing it together as a group is really impressive. So Yeah, if anyone thinks that we're kind of losers, try it yourself. <laughs> I was maybe hoping it went in the direction of what we're about to talk about and just how teachers are dealing with Hogwarts and everything that's going on there right now. Uh, because at the start of the chapter, th there's three things that kind of caught my attention. It's noted that Snape has intensified his bullying of Neville. Trelawney is crying every time she sees Harry, and Hagrid's class has become a snooze fest of boring creatures. Mm. So these three professors are just, they're going through it. it, it it's not a uh, healthy place for them to be right now. I mean, Snape probably really enjoys what he is doing, so maybe we can put him off to the side. But Trelawney emotionally attached to Harry in some way, and then Hagrid is just He's a mess. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and imagine being Harry. You walk by Trelawney. She just starts openly crying every time. I mean, that's got to be pretty traumatic as well. <laughs> and a teacher, nonetheless, right? Yeah, an authority figure, right? right. An adult. Yeah. <laughs> like, is she just like barely tearing up or is she like openly weeping and sobbing like when she's about to get let go level? <laughs> I can't remember, but I hope it's just like openly, loudly sobbing. <laughs> I think it was that her eyes welled up. If I recall correctly, every time she saw Harry, her eyes got really big and they welled up. And Ashley, you had a question about Trelawney, right? Yeah, I just uh, kind of wondered, like, she's the one that like made the prophecy in the first place, but she doesn't remember it. And she's at Hogwarts as kind of a protective factor on herself. But is there some sort of subconscious situation where she knows that her prophecy is actually like why Harry is in the situation that he's in? Or like if she does subconsciously have any sort of memory of it, would she even know that it is about Harry because he's not explicitly named? Right. Because the prophecy itself is still like vague and could be open ended. I don't know. I like the idea that she has a reason to focus on Harry, like even if she doesn't know it, that she would like gravitate toward the boy. But it seems like he's just easy prey. 
um, is probably the better answer. And that actually makes what Trelawney is doing a form of bullying, I think, which I'd never accuse her of. But if you really think about it, she's picking on the chosen one who has the worst past out of anybody in the class because it's easy. And she wants to get new subscribers to the realm of divination by continually predicting his doom, which is more than likely to come true because he's always in danger. And that's not cool. And it seems like she does this every year, right? According to what McGonagall says, she predicts the death of one student in her class every year. So does she just single out the person who seems like maybe they have the most trauma or the most danger in their lives and sort of create this uh, black cloud over their head for the entire school year? And at what point does she drop the act and move on to her next victim? Is what <laughs> I wonder. Bored. Probably her subject drops the class. Like, I wonder if that's got like the highest turnover rate of students going. I thought I was interested in this, but no, Trelawney keeps saying (laughs) I'm going to die. So you are right, Ashley. Harry does tell her about the prophecy at one point, and she says that she did not remember it. And she never would have made something up as far fetched as that. (laughs) I'm obsessed. Not that far fetched. Oh, the irony. I think though to ashley's point there could be something subconscious going on there because clearly part of her made the prophecy whether she remembers it or not there is an attachment certainly harry but eric you brought up bullying bullying is kind of a pervasive theme at the start of this chapter where it explicitly calls out snape's treatment of neville after word got out that Snape was seen parading around in Neville's grandmother's clothing during a defense against the dark arts lesson, which it shows you the maturity level of Snape to respond in the way that he does to continue to bully Neville as a result of that. You mentioned Trelawney bullying Harry in a way, and also Hagrid's state of mind is a result of being bullied by Draco and how he responded to what happened to him in the class. And I read this somewhere and I just thought it was really great that while Snape can't teach because he's too confident, Hagrid can't teach because he has no confidence. Mm. And it's just, again, it's tough to be a teacher at Hogwarts these days. In many ways, tougher than being a student. Where is Dumbledore? Yeah, I'm not going to feel bad for Snape. We'll see Dumbledore later. Um, can you run me through, Micah, what you mean by Snape can't teach because he's too confident? I don't make that connect. What, like, what does that mean? I think he has a, well, he definitely has an air of arrogance about him. And I think that that clouds his ability to effectively teach his students. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Massive superiority complex. Can I bounce back about 30 seconds and like bounce onto something that Micah said? Because like Snape is upset at, having had Neville's mom's clothes on him and like being kind of made a joke of in that situation. But it's not even Neville who came up with the idea to dress him in his mother's clothes. It's Remus. But Remus is the one in high school that wasn't bullying Severus. And so is it like, obviously he's bullying Neville in the situation, but is it any sort of just kind of like trauma and callback to the marauders taunting and tormenting him so much in high school right like his looping off limits so he's he can't even like snape can't um fight out against lupin so he makes it worse for neville 
Yeah. Yeah. I think too, like we are forgetting that for those who know what Bogarts are and for those who know what the situation was in the room, there's no way Neville's Bogart could have been Snape if it weren't Snape's fault. Snape being the one that made his life a living hell up to this point. And so you can get mad about the whole drag thing, but I'm sorry, that's not reasonable. Like Snape cannot be a little bit angry about anything that happened because it's his own fault. If he weren't such a terror to Neville, Neville never would have been able to conjure him in DADA. And that's the truth that's being overlooked, I think, by Snape. And that's the truth that a lot of people just think, ha, you know, Snape and Grandma's clothes, funny. But the real sad part is it couldn't have existed. Like, he had to be Neville's deepest fear. And that's really sad. I have to make a movie connection here. Um, So there's a time on set in one of the earlier movies that we heard during shooting for one of the potions classes, Rupert Grant drew a rather unflattering um, caricature of Alan Rickman. And Alan Rickman saw it, confiscated it. But instead of reacting in the way that Snape reacts to Neville here, he like put it up on his wall or something like that. He thought it was funny. He leaned into it. And it's just such a nice contrast between the person that Alan Rickman was and the character that he was playing in the films. Oh, yeah. Love Alan. So also around this area that we're discussing in this chapter, it's noted that Parvati and Lavender are regularly visiting Trelawney to take in new predictions from her. And... (laughs) I got to say, I kind of see why they would get sort of like addicted to hearing her latest predictions because you want to know what's coming up. For me, it just it sounds like they have connected with a teacher and they very much like spending time with her and hearing what she asked. Like they found their their niche, so to speak. Mm. And it's just it actually it's a really great contrast to some of what we were talking about just before with the bullying aspect is that. For Parvati and Lavender, they've connected with Trelawney, much like Harry does a little bit later in this chapter with Lupin. It's a positive connection versus a lot of the negativity that we've seen so far. Yeah, I, I still see it as um it is it is very positive for Parvati and Lavender to have that like mentor. I just wish she were a better mentor. Um, you know, I, I think that there there might be long-term damage to following um Trelawney's kind of way of looking at the world because Trelawney is ultimately kind of a fraud when it comes to being able to instruct someone else in divination. Yeah. So I wonder if I wonder if they continue that friendship with the teacher like over the next couple of years because I I'd like to think that they support the teacher like even if they know after what Hermione says in this chapter which we'll talk about later um that it's not a perfect art and that Trelawney is has some very good flaws the idea that they would still think the subject is worth going into and they kind of overlook Trelawney's more obvious flaws to like have that connection with her. I hope that that's the case. But I think that part of the reason Trelawney's acting out all the time is to get acolytes, is to get people to be like, ooh, you know, and start bursting into tears whenever Harry walks around and said, and that's that's just bullying, unfortunately. Yeah, it really sells what she's trying to sell yeah by really leaning into these predictions and getting emotional about them it's helping convince people that she firmly believes these predictions that she's making yeah and i think they do continue to maintain a pretty close relationship with her because if i recall correctly when umbridge sacks her in order of the phoenix 
and tries to kick her out of the school, which is ultimately prevented, I think Parvati and Lavender are both crying in that moment. They have a strong emotional reaction to what's happening. I also think it's interesting that they kind of pivot their admiration to Ferenz when he begins teaching divination. So Hmm. it suggests that they connect with the subject matter too, and not just the person teaching it. Oh, that's a good call out. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's interesting because I was going to compare it not in like the fraud aspect, but in the like not really a good teacher aspect of the fact that the trio finally follow Hagrid. And even though the class is boring as all get out, they still love and support Hagrid. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but it's not the subject that they love. It is not that they actually love care of magical creatures. It's that they love Hagrid. But Pavardi and Lavender, I think it's more the subject to divination and their attachment to it. Um, even though they will still defend their teacher to the death. Mm-hmm. Good point. And you could even connect the threads further because these are both classes that we see professor changes happen in Order of the Phoenix, right? Mm-hmm. We get Ferenz in Divination and then we get Professor Grubbly Plank in Order of the or in, in Care of Magical Creatures. And it could be argued that in both cases they're better than their predecessors. Definitely in the case of Hagrid. <laughs> Sorry, Hagrid. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a hard thing for Harry to accept, right? He has a hard time really admitting to himself that Grubbly Plank is a better teacher. But ultimately, he does have to reconcile that because she's just doing a better job. So let's move along in the chapter here. Quidditch season is about to begin. And what yeah, is sports. stressed? Yeah, sports, bro. <laughs> I'll redo this. So Quidditch season is about to begin and Wood's stressed, man, because it's his last year at Hogwarts and his last chance to win the Quidditch Cup. Gryffindor hasn't won for seven years, but he is optimistic they can win this year because he thinks they have an excellent team in place. And uh, spoiler alert, they do win at the end of this book. And I think it's easy to feel for Wood here, because if I was Quidditch captain, I would want to lead my team to a win at some point during my Hogwarts career. And I was also looking at how many years he had been Quidditch captain. It's either three or four years. It looks like we don't have a firm answer. He became captain in his fourth or fifth year. Charlie preceded him as Quidditch captain. We do know that. This is always interesting to me because if Wood has been the captain for three or four years, it means the Gryffindor Quidditch team had a third year captain. Like you'd be captain of the Quidditch team in your third year. Harry eventually gets there, I think, three years from now, but that's a little young. You see what I'm saying? So like and Angelina Johnson and Katie Bell are all like because they remain at Hogwarts for another couple of years. They're younger than Wood. It's very interesting, like reading this chapter and reading this thing about what I'm like, I really wonder how the age is all like, what did the Quidditch team look like four years ago? Yeah, because I think it is noted that the last time Gryffindor won the Quidditch Cup was when Charlie Weasley was captain. And it makes me want to revisit something we talked about in Chamber of Secrets. Micah, I'm really interested for your thoughts here. Is Oliver Wood a good captain? Oh, look, he's had to deal with more strange interferences in his matches than probably any other Quidditch captain has during their time at Hogwarts, if you think about it. He had Harry dangling off of his broom. 
because of Quirrell. Then you had Harry dangling off of his or the rogue bludger with Dobby. Then you had the Dementor in in this coming up in in this book. So, you know, I'm I'm willing to give him a bit of a pass. It does seem in the matches that we're able to to not have so much weird stuff going on that Gryffindor is actually pretty good. Yeah, Laura, don't be okay. so hard on him. I'm not. I'm just asking a question. Okay. <laughs> I'm just asking the question. Journalistic integrity here in the wizarding world. All right, Rita. Uh, So we, (laughs) Rita, in his first year, Harry wasn't there, right? So we can say rookie captain just getting his feet wet. But then once Harry comes on board, it's three straight years again of really weird shit happening (laughs) during during important matches. So. I, I think he's decent. He does go on to play, doesn't he? I'd have to look yeah, up on. He does. Know. Puddlemere United. I mean, Harry has to be a really good seeker to keep that liability on the team because mm-hmm. he is the reason. Yeah, no pressure, Harry. So meanwhile, the first Hogsmeade visit of the year is coming up and it's going to be on Halloween. And Harry decides he is going to ask McGonagall if he can get permission to go from her And Harry uses the excuse that Vernon and Petunia forgot to sign it and uh, his permission slip. And McGonagall gives him a firm no. She says, no form, no visiting the village. That's the rule. And that's when Harry reminds her that his aunt and uncle don't understand Hogwarts forms and stuff. So I was wondering, do we accept McGonagall's reasoning here? Because in defense of McGonagall, if she lets him go... She would have to let others go who don't have signed permission slips for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. And if something happens to Harry, then it's on her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, do Mm -hmm. you want to be the one who got the chosen one killed? I don't think so. (laughs) Man. Well, funnily enough, the the call is coming from inside the house later in the chapter. (laughs) (laughs) That's and right. We'll talk about that because I kind of feel like it should have played out differently. Well, by by denying him Hogsmeade access, they actually put him in more risk. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Especially given nobody was there. I mean, we, we'll talk about it. Yeah. But yeah. I, I actually disagree with McGonagall's approach here. I, I think that she could have easily signed his permission slip being his head of house. Now, let's not forget Harry also asked the Minister for Magic to give him permission (laughs) to go to Hogsmeade. So I just feel like Harry should be onto something here that uh, something's not right. If Mm. he can't get the people that he puts trust in, especially McGonagall, to allow him to go. I do understand the lesson in all of this, though, too, in that if you didn't get it signed by your parents, you're not able to go. But at the same time, McGonagall could have come through for him here. I will say Harry maybe should have been more forthcoming. He he kind of danced around what the problem was, saying that his Vernon Petunia forgot to sign it and they don't understand Hogwarts forms. Why not just be blunt and say, look, if I tried to have them sign it they would say no no matter how good of a boy i was over the summer no matter what i did they would most likely say no then mcgonagall maybe would have been more sympathetic i think i mean readers know that she has pretty good insight into what kind of people the dursleys are um Mm -hmm. in fact she heavily 
cautioned Dumbledore against putting Harry with them because she saw them for one day, literally one day in their life and was like, these are horrible people. So if Harry had said something like my uncle who regularly abuses me refused to sign the form, I think it really would have pulled at her heartstrings more. The answer may still have been no, because we know about the threat that she's trying to avoid. But it would have been harder. Like she is still in this scene that we do get avoiding eye contact and trying to like stick to the rules, but it would have been harder for her. I think um, because when she stands up, there's something in her voice and Harry's like, is that pity? Um, But I think she's already made the connection that Harry's family didn't sign because they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to call into question what the fandom always criticizes and for good reason why is there a permission slip, but not for the Triwizard Tournament, not for Quidditch, not for anything else? <laughs> security nightmare. <laughs> Starting to sound like a security nightmare. Security nightmare. Ashley, I don't have an answer for you. That was a brilliant question. Yeah, it's one of those inconsistencies that kind of makes us a little crazy as we're analyzing the books. Could it be? Could it be around alcohol? Because they can go into Hogsmeade and get themselves an adult beverage is that literally fire breathing dragon alcohol I mean, they're not winky they're not getting completely sloshed on butterbeer they could though no but like if you pro- if, if yeah if you provide that access it's literally like why certain establishments need a license to sell liquor right so it's like maybe there's something to do with that it's the uk though it's not america i'm with andrew i have to think the wizarding world is probably even more lax around like legal drinking ages yeah andrew makes a great point like in quidditch you can get seriously injured as we've seen in harry's first two years triwizard tournament you could die so i mean i think you but those are all taking place at hogwarts and hogsmeade is not hogwarts and so you need to give permission for your kid to leave the school whereas when they go to the school you know what they're in for and they're bound to the school it's a quick jog from the school, though. I mean, I can yeah. do it in 45 seconds in Hogwarts Legacy. In Hogwarts Even quicker Le- with a broom. I, yeah. Uh, let's measure it in game and get back to it. <laughs> I tried to explain this. It doesn't make sense. Ashley, it's a great point. Why do you need a permission slip to go there? There's really nowhere cozier than Hogsmeade, right? <laughs> oh, all no. roads. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes I feel like all roads lead there. Wait, <laughs> that, that took me a second, but I get it now. Well yeah. done. <laughs> the, <laughs> I haven't played it in a few weeks. Yeah, well, it's because they put that patch in that you, uh, you're you not hearing her every 30 seconds. Oh, my oh, God. I, I would, <laughs> if I were still playing that game, I would miss it. I was ready to AK her. Not these, are, <laughs> these are all Hogwarts <laughs> legacy references. You're ready to AK everything. I didn't even learn AK, you monster. I know, you should have. <laughs> it's a lot more fun if you do. I didn't learn it either. <laughs> oh, look at you two, angels. But I, I will say it was very therapeutic using it in a battle arena because there's one battle arena where you can use the unforgivable curses. And even oh. if you didn't learn Avada Kedavra, you can use it. Oh, I gotta check that out. That's cool. I'm done with Hogwarts Legacy and I've moved on to Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Me too. Me too. (laughs) Me three. I am curious, even if Vernon had signed Harry's permission slip, do we think the professors would have let Harry go to Hogsmeade? That's the million dollar question. Very good question. Maybe under guard. I mean, Harry has a permission slip so that the teachers can all deny him 
permission, you know, like so that he continues to feel bad about it and has to manufacture another way out. But then Harry would really need to start asking some questions if he's protected going to Hogsmeade like he was going to King's Cross. Like what's going on here at the end yeah. of the day? I think I think I I think Ron brings this up maybe in this chapter or an earlier one. There's so many people around, around Hogsmeade too. I think it would just be inherently a safe environment because yeah. there would you know, the crowds would basically protect him, I think. And there would be yeah. tons of witnesses if Sirius were to attack there. And the teachers are often there. Based on the story and lore of Sirius Black, he wouldn't care if there's witnesses. He killed 13 muggles in an alleyway. Right. Yeah. So yeah. honestly, it's surprising to me if Sirius is seen to be as big of a threat as he's, you know, perceived to be. To Ashley's point, it's kind of shocking to me that any students are allowed to go to Hogsmeade right now if they think that Sirius Black is after a Hogwarts student. Hogsmeade weekends for Hogwarts students would be like the prime target for someone oh, absolutely. like Absolutely. I mean, this mm. is kind of dark and sorry because we've been having fun today, but think about how here in the muggle world, if there's a threat like a mass shooter, people go into lockdown mode. Towns mm-hmm. go into lockdown mode. You know, it's mm. kind of it's the same thing. But anyway, I do really remember feeling for Harry the first time reading this book because as kids, we would go on field trips and it was always so exciting. It's a day out of school and you get to go somewhere you probably have never been before. And they they, they would tend to be pretty fun and to be told you can't go while everybody else is going. That that hurts. That really hurts. That's probably like the first time we experienced FOMO <laughs> as, as kids. <laughs> The fear of missing out. Yeah, I, I certainly remember situations like that. And one of the things I, I wanted to bring up is that by treating Harry this way, they're really isolating him. And and I feel that's what I feel for him most of all in reading this chapter is that they're taking steps to separate him from his peers and have a really fun, amazing experience that he can't now replicate with Ron and Hermione because they're not going together the first time into Hogsmeade. You know, we know he sneaks in later on in the book, but it's just, we see it happen in Order of the Phoenix too, right? Dumbledore is just a total, I'm not going to say the word, but just in how he treats Harry, he isolates him from so much of what's going on that it causes Harry to really experience things that he shouldn't necessarily have to be experiencing at 15 years old. So it's just the treatment by authority figures in both of these books is disheartening. There's almost no good answer with the third year, though, because Sirius Black is coming straight for him, or they assume. They do have to deny him that. They do have to restrict his rights, but they just don't have another choice, I really think. Unless they were to keep him under guard and give up the, because he also can't know about it. They're trying to protect his innocence and in so doing, greatly restricting his movements. Yeah. And Micah, you called out that connecting the threads moment related to the strong themes of isolation in Prisoner of Azkaban and Order of the Phoenix. Those apply for both Harry and Sirius in both books. Different ways, but they still apply. And Harry also relies heavily on a marauder. In each of these cases, in Prisoner of Azkaban, it's Lupin. In Order of the Phoenix, he's really closest to Sirius in terms of 
recognizing someone who understands what he's going through. Excellent points, everybody. And we see how that ends. Not good. (laughs) So let's talk about FOMO. Did anyone here have to watch as others got to have fun or take a trip without you? And how did that feel? Sucky. Feels awful. <laughs> Crappy. Doesn't feel good. Um, yeah. Th- there were a few field trips, even ones that I had permission slips for that maybe I was sick the day of. You do feel like you're missing an experience. And I guess the modern day adult way of experiencing what Harry's going through is when you see people going on cool vacations and then they post on the social media and you're like, oh. it's funny how these i want to go to hawaii yeah it's funny how these feelings evolve over time because when you're a kid every missed trip feels like a life-changing experience that you would have had but didn't right like oh i didn't get to go to the renaissance fair this one time my life is over (laughs) um but then as an adult there's this peaceful acceptance of like i seem to recall one of us saying recently when you hit your 30s the only thing better than making plans is canceling plans yep. <laughs> and like really enjoying being kind of like, ah, maybe I'll do nothing today instead of doing something. Or when somebody cancels plans on you and you're like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to go so, out. <laughs> so I think we can appreciate the adult perspective of like Harry's life is not over. He should just chill in the castle. It'll be cool. Um, but yeah, you're right, Andrew, because when you do see people particularly going on vacations now, cruises, tropical. A lot of our friends are kind of around there now. Uh, Yeah, that sucks, actually. Like, how do they have money to do that? And aren't they worried about COVID? And, you know, it just feels like you go into a cycle. Yeah. I've always wanted to go on a cruise, by the way. I'm glad you called that out because I was going to say that. I've never been on a cruise. So I see people. My mom and sister went on a cruise without me in high school. <laughs> oh, well, there's a good example. I assume that's where you had co- some That's FOMO. where it comes from. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Andrew, I'm telling you, you should go on one of these themed cruises. I think uh-huh. that would be the perfect combination for you because you get the cruise experience, but you also either get to go. I think there have been Springsteen cruises in the past or maybe. Even, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, wasn't there one coming up, though, that you no. were looking at? No, you're thinking of a twit cruise, I think. My my boy Leo That's Laporte. <laughs> right. This Week in Tech was doing a cruise. And Leo got COVID on the ship. So I would have <sighs> just, just gotten COVID. It was yeah, up to Alaska. I, mean, I could have hung out with Ashley. <laughs> hey, you have to. Ex- like, if you're going to do something like that, you're accepting that you might get sick. And cruise crud is a real thing. If you go on a cruise ship, you are probably getting sick. <laughs> at least motion sickness. It. Yeah. It's fun, though. Well, Ashley, speaking of FOMO, I think you mentioned having some FOMO because of being in Alaska. There's some things yeah. that aren't easily available. No, my nearest target is a five-hour drive away. Oh. We have no chain restaurants where I live. So just like my life is FOMO. Like I see the neighbor come home sometimes and there's a target bag in her car. And I'm like, you went? <laughs> you ventured across the state for Ashley, I can I have some extra reusable target bags I could mail you yeah, some just, target bags. Just so I can like make the neighbor jealous. Like I go to the Fred Meyer, but like they think that I went to Target and I'm like, yeah. I've heard <laughs> good things about Fred Meyer. That's a pretty good yeah. food store, right? Yeah, Fred Meyer and Costco are like our main stores. Oh, you have a Costco? I'm a huge that's Costco a, fan. That's my Disneyland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, adult yeah. Disneyland for real. Costco yeah, is. It's, our constant conversations of like, when did my life become the fact that like my husband's entire wardrobe is from Costco and <laughs> yeah. Kirkland signature, baby. Yeah. 
I'm just picturing you now flipping through social and you see somebody at Target or like Burger King and you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. FOMO. Well, wow. remember, social media is a lie. It's the, ha- the you only see the happiness. <laughs> it's that, just the highlight have- reel. It's the highlight reel. No, happiness is Texas Roadhouse rolls that I don't have access oh, to. Man, so are if so those are. <laughs> mm, Texas Roadhouse rolls. Have you never yeah. had those, Andrew? You no, I know of Texas, Texas Roadhouse, Roadhouse, but I haven't. No. Oh, man. The rolls they give are really, really good. You should get some. All right, well, I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> the free bread at any restaurant is like what I go for. And I have none of that here. How do we feel about the fact that a lot of times FOMO it's directly due to something that we ourselves have caused. But in this case, Harry is experiencing FOMO because of the adult's decision-making in not allowing him to go to Hogsmeade. I think you're right that it's something that is outside of his control. Ultimately, the reason he really can't go is because his home situation, right? His, his aunt and uncle are not accepting of him. It's something he can't change. I don't think Harry himself would even blame the teachers. I think he'd admit they said no to stepping in, but I I don't think he blames them specifically. I still think he should have forged his permission form. I don't know why he didn't do that. Isn't that like, (laughs) isn't that like student 101? Didn't we all do that at one point when our parents wouldn't sign something for school? But we all when Filch or someone else be suspicious, maybe not Filch, but like McGonagall definitely would be suspicious. Yeah, McGonagall would probably call it into question, try and authenticate it. Yeah. I had teachers place permission slips in front of me and say, sign your dad's name there. Really? (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's nuts, (laughs) actually. That's crazy. And what state was this in? That was South Dakota. Okay. Oh, that's that's the Wild West. (laughs) (laughs) The... The, the issue is, so we actually get a new character trait for Dean Thomas, who is, quote, good with a quill. And he offers to forge Harry's signature. I didn't know this about Dean. What an amazing thing. <laughs> a little baddie. But Harry already told McGonagall that he didn't have it filled out. So I know. He's too honest. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm not surprised. Dean knows how to get away with murder without really trying. So That's true. Great connection. Is this a reference to the television show? Yeah, <laughs> okay. slick. I, I had it like, yeah, it no, just it's popped good. into my head. The uh, but so Harry and Ron really who's who's coaxing him through the whole thing. Ron is a really good supportive friend at this moment. You know, it's like in spite of whatever's going on with him and Hermione, he's still like coaxing Harry. Go do it. Ask her. Ask her. Um, but they didn't really uh, rule out any of their alternative options before going to McGonagall. And that's the mistake. Laura, you have a FOMO story, too. I think you should drop in. Oh, I do. I do. Um, I had so much FOMO around the first live leaky mug that MuggleCast did with um, the Leaky Cauldrons podcast, Pottercast, at the Goblet of Fire premiere in New York City. Y'all all went. I wasn't allowed to go. And <laughs> I had no I, idea. I had so much FOMO around it. You guys called me. Y'all gave me a call while you were there. And I remember like picking up the phone and being so pissed. <laughs> it was just like, man, I'm just at home in rural Georgia. And these fools are running around New York City doing premiere stuff. The Did FOMO your parents was not let you go because really you would just be taking a trip with a bunch of boys and that sounded inappropriate? I don't think that was it. I think it was it was early on in the days of the podcast. 
they didn't know who any of you were. Um, you know, you could have been pretending to be teenagers and actually been, you know, creeps. Um, so I think that was probably well, I mean, part of it. In some cases. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been accurate. Uh, yeah, yeah. And on Patreon After Dark today, we will be talking about the time we all have encountered creeps. Yes. And they are out there. I do remember, I, I, I feel like Kevin and I, when we went to the podcast awards in Ontario, we talked with your parents, at least with your dad, just to put them at ease and make them comfortable with the fact that- That's such you- a Micah and Kevin thing to go to. <laughs> when did you guys go do that? I missed it. I think that, well, didn't you give them our numbers as the, yeah. kind of the emergency yeah. contacts? Yeah, because I was, you know, I was flying across the country from Georgia to California for the podcast awards. And um, it was funny because before that, I think Lumos was before that, right? Yeah. So Kevin was my guardian at Lumos because if you were under 18, you had to have a guardian at the convention. <laughs> so like my parents signed over Kevin as my guardian at Lumos. Um, That's your Hogsmeade permission slip. <laughs> that is my Hogsmeade permission slip. And then when it came to going across the country, my parents at that point had listened to the show and were familiar with it. And I think that they just identified that Micah and Kevin sounded like the most responsible of the group. Uh, yes, that's accurate. <laughs> and so they, uh, my dad had both of y'all's numbers. And I know that my flight got delayed getting into LA and nobody knew where I was. And I landed I and I had that. a voicemail from my dad being like, uh, I just talked to Micah and he says, you're not there. Oh, where are you? Um, so it, it's really funny looking back on that because I think in those days there was that hesitancy for parents about their kids making friends online that like they couldn't really verify identities for <laughs> and, you know, being comfortable shipping your kid across the country to do something solo when they're still underage, I would imagine is intimidating. But they got used to the idea. By the time Lumos came around, it was fine. But in those early days, I was like, man, I don't get to do anything fun. I mean, I understand their hesitation with Micah's voice. They're like, that that's not a teenage boy. So that's <laughs> <not>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my parents Safety. were nervous too. First time I flew over to London, uh, actually, my mom, I think, spoke on the phone with Melissa from the Leaky Cauldron because she was older than me. So I think my parents were comforted by the fact that and I, I we were on the same flight going over to, to London for a Harry Potter set visit and so they spoke and my mom felt better about that because i'd never been overseas like for their child who was i don't know 17 at the time 17 18 that was a yeah, big my deal parents scrutinized it too it, and 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 i think we were lucky to have that level of like 100%. even though it sucked even though it sucked for us at the time well thanks yeah. mom here on mother's yeah, day we, yeah. Yeah, we gotta say that and okay, see that's so. that's the thing here is that it's easy when you're at that age to feel like, man, this is such a drag. Everybody's overreacting. But then with time and age and life experience, you look back and you're like, oh, actually, I'm kind of surprised that there wasn't more scrutiny. I can see why this was intimidating for my parents to consider. 
And from that perspective, you can understand where the teachers at Hogwarts are coming from with not letting Harry go to Hogsmeade. It's too risky. So Harry's feeling the FOMO and he's crestfallen over not being able to go to Hogsmeade. So he starts meandering around the castle and he really can't catch a break. He runs into Colin Creevy, who, of course, is being annoying. And then a few minutes later, he truthfully tells Filch that he's currently doing nothing when Filch uh, is suspicious of what he's up to. And Filch doesn't believe him. He just can't catch a break and get some peace. But then things change when he comes across Lupin and Lupin's office. And Harry decides to ask Lupin about the Boggart lesson. And Lupin says he didn't let Harry have a turn with the Boggart because he was concerned it would be Voldemort. And Harry says, well, after I thought about it, I thought it would actually be a Dementor instead. And I know, Micah, you had a question here about Lupin actually addressing Voldemort by name. Yeah, it's... It's actually noted by Harry that it's so far in this series, the only other person we know that's called Voldemort by name, aside from Harry, is Dumbledore. Uh, so to see Lupin be so willing after you know, how many different people have we come across when Harry says the name, they always tell him, don't say the name. You know, And so there's something, I hopefully, I think from a confidence perspective, maybe that Harry sees in Lupin, there's, there's a connection between the two of them in that Lupin doesn't have the fear of speaking Voldemort's name. And I think in, in some ways, maybe that endears Lupin to Harry. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch. Kind of like a trust factor there and a mutual understanding, a mutual confidence in saying, his name. I mean, he's also a marauder. He's a Gryffindor. And I think he wants to make a point about the enemy who killed his best friend. Like, I'm not afraid of him. Mm. He's also a Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. So I would hope that and a member of the he can say and a member of the a member of the former first iteration of Order of the Phoenix. But we've seen other members of Order of the Phoenix get all freaked out. Like McGonagall won't even say his name. She's McGonagall. So it is a it is a point of connection for Harry where he's like, so few people are this fearless. I connect with you. They said that uh, Lily and James thrice defied Voldemort, whatever that means. I still don't know. But I wonder if Remus ever faced like got really close to facing him. And if mm. you if you're in that position where you're attacking Death Eaters or going up straight against Voldemort, you're probably going to be OK saying his name. It seems likely because wasn't Voldemort trying to recruit werewolves? Yeah. So it, it's possible that Remus might have been approached at one point, either by Voldemort or an associate. Yeah. I'm thinking there's there might be something personal. And it could just be that his best friends were killed by him, like you're saying. Yeah. Like, and Harry and Remus, in that case, both say Voldemort's name for the same exact reason, which is that he caused their loss. Yeah. And I... There's just something that's very practical about Lupin in terms of how he thinks. And it's almost as if he he would not find the value in calling him he who must not be named. It's like call call a spade a spade at the end of the day. Like mm-hmm. why and and I would say too, for somebody who had experienced all of what he's experienced throughout his life and being in a position of constant fear and being a werewolf in terms of how he's going to be treated, I think he could care less about being fearful of Voldemort's name. 
again, that might be a stretch too, but. And while Harry and Lupin are meeting here in the office, Snape enters to deliver some Wolfsbane potion. And I do love that this big secret about Lupin is just hiding in plain sight in front of Harry. He has no idea what's going on. Harry says, well, what's that for? And Lupin says he's feeling off color, which I think was a good fair phrase. You're not sick. You're feeling off color. It definitely reminds me of, I don't know if anyone ever had this experience when you're younger, if, you know, there's an older person in your life who's serving as a mentor to you or you just otherwise admire them, if they have something medical going on, it always seems very common to me that people in that position try to kind of move past any questions around that very quickly. So that kind of reminded me of this. It just reminded me of other examples where I've seen adults do that just to be like, oh, I haven't been feeling well. Um, Or, oh, you know, this is just something that I have to do to take care of myself anyway. (laughs) And they just keep (laughs) it moving. That's a good point. Agreed. And I don't think Snape can really like the idea of Harry and Lupin cozying up to each other in this if you're Snape, the worst possible outcome walking into that room is seeing Lupin and Harry sitting down talking to each other. Um, because honestly, who's to say that Lupin doesn't share the history of the Marauders and Snape and how Snape was treated? And and maybe he feels even that that could give Harry kind of a one up on him at the end of the day. Yeah. Absolutely. It is Snape's worst memory. Right. I mean, he's he's probably triggered seeing Remus there, but also seeing a carbon copy effectively of James. It's it's probably really triggering to see those two talking again. I was going to use the exact same word because I'm sure he's thinking of James in that moment and just imagining Lupin and James together. Well, and it's a shame it like the, Snape should walk in and feel all of this uh, when it's the first time that this has ever happened that Remus and Harry are together. Like he probably thinks it's been every weeknight, you know, since the dawn of the school year. Um, actually, given all of this, Snape really keeps remarkably uh, composed, I think. He in, does. During the moment. It is interesting, though, um, because Lupin refers to Snape as Severus. He uses his first name. And Snape does not return the favor. He refers to him as Lupin. So even though he's well composed, you can still tell there's something tense going on there from Snape's perspective. We just don't have all the history yet. And Harry should be curious because he Snape goes out of his way to say there's a whole cauldron waiting for you. And like I buy it. And it's like, really? Just a little pickup potion? And, and, and even what kind of like feeling off color potion is so complicated that Lupin says, I'm so grateful to have Snape, you know, be the one to be able to make this because not many people can. It's like, wow. Okay. It's the seven up and saltines of my childhood. (laughs) Seven up and saltines. There will never be a better combo. I just feel like this moment between um, Remus and Harry is more of kind of like an uncle Remus rather than a professor Lupin sort of moment. He's really kind of just bonding with him, but still trying to kind of like maintain some sort of distance. And I remember the first time reading it, um, just feeling like there's something more there than just like the average teacher caring about Harry. But, you know, we just don't have all of the background 
And then when you look back in hindsight, it's like, I feel like you can just really see that like Remus wants so bad to be able to tell him like your dad was my best friend and like, you know, and like really bond with him. But I think Remus would do it for any student he found out wandering about. But I think that he just like is really connecting with Harry and being more that role that he wishes he could have had. The ability to be Uncle Remus was ripped from him. And he kind of gets to finally bond with the kid that he has obviously cared about all these years. Yeah, that's a great point. And it made me wonder, Ashley and the rest of the panel, should Remus have told Harry that he knew James at this point? Maybe not go so far into the history. Maybe not say James was one of my best friends. But just say, yeah, uh, I knew your dad. We were at Hogwarts at the same time. It's weird because it puts in it, this weight or this angle where there wasn't one before. And I think Remus, some teachers would abuse that. Some teachers would, you know, look to gain a student's favor the way that Trelawney is with Lavender and Parvati by n- seeming to know more than they do. But Remus just uh, doesn't promise Harry any answers about his past. He just treats him like any other student and is infinitely available to Harry anytime Harry wants to ask about a thing that happened in class, but doesn't really dangle any carrots um, of like, I know more than you about any of it. So he's a better teacher yeah, at the he's end not, of the day. He, yeah. he has no ulterior motive, even, and, and he's preventing himself, like you're saying, from maybe giving into what his emotional needs might be by connecting with this kid that could have been his nephew. Do we know at this point the Snape James background at all? Like, does Harry know that Snape and James were in school together? Because if he does, which I'm not 100% sure if he does at this point, I feel like that would just open up the door of questions. Yeah, Sorcerer Stone, Sorcerer Stone Dumbledore tells Harry at the very end that uh, James saved Snape's life, I think. That's at the right. very yeah. the very end of the yeah. first book, we yeah. already know that James and Snape hated each other as students. So even if it was a vague statement, like, yeah, I was in school at the same time as your dad, it would open up a slew of the ability to start asking Remus about them. Yeah. So it's time for a what if. What if Harry had mentioned the black dog he saw in Magnolia Crescent? So this is something that Harry considers telling Remus, but I'm curious... What if he did tell him about it? He clearly Lupin knows that Sirius is an animagus, which is very interesting thinking about it now because he doesn't offer up that information to anybody who is looking for Sirius. Right. (laughs) Do we think that Remus would largely be alarmed if Harry had told him? Because it means that Sirius Black absolutely has been coming for Harry and almost got him. <laughs> like literally almost got him. <laughs> well, so Eric, you do some good voices here on the I show. Can't believe, I can't believe this is pl- a planned thing in the document. Thank you. Yes. Thank do you your just, best, uh, David. Thank you a million times. Okay. Yeah, well, what would Lupin say to Harry if he had mentioned the black dog? Well, so somebody has to play Harry because... Professor. Yes. I, I have to tell you something. I, I saw a black dog. Before the start of the year. Uh, and I've been worried about it. Where did you see this dog? Magnolia Crescent. Well, of course, like non-verbally, it's like knowing what it all means and trying to keep composure. Shifting eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harry, uh, 
Are there many dogs in residential areas like Magnolia Crescent? Again, just trying to downplay it. I, I haven't thought of that before, actually. Yes, I, I've seen dogs before, but this one and, and hearing about the Grim, I, I just don't know. It's all adding up. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. And that said, there aren't any dogs here at Hogwarts. Professor, I really wanted to go to Hogsmeade. <laughs> <laughs> here, have some chocolate. <laughs> That's okay. fun. Yeah, good that job, was... Eric. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I Did that answer your Blu- question, Micah? <laughs> uh, kind of, sort of, maybe. But I mean, I was wondering if you would have had a bit more of a Peter Pettigrew type of moment when Harry tells him that he sees Peter Pettigrew on the Marauder's map. Oh, yeah. And he says, that's not possible. And so I'm wondering when Harry's telling the story about seeing the dog in Magnolia Crescent, if he would draw the connection to Sirius. I think he would. And I think it actually might have motivated Lupin to telling Dumbledore about the Animagus stuff, because to this point, later in the book, Lupin says he was so nervous about knowing about the Animagus stuff that he didn't tell Dumbledore because Dumbledore was doing him a solid by getting him this job. But if it seems likely that Sirius is actively using his animagus form to either get into the castle or try and find Harry, then it changes the game just slightly enough that I think Lupin would be more wary of a black dog. So if if Harry had told him, that's kind of why it's fun, too, that he doesn't tell him, because it's that piece of the puzzle that ultimately proves to, like, be the undoing of everything. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think at this point in time, Lupin more believes that Sirius is a criminal because he doesn't know about the Marauder's map and Peter Pettigrew appearing on the map, right? That's really what starts putting the pieces together for him and making him realize that Sirius was actually innocent all along. At this stage in the story, I think it would have motivated him to potentially isolate Harry further knowing that Sirius is using his Animagus form to try and get close, I think it would have radically changed the trajectory of this story. And it's funny because it's not like Harry gets interrupted or anything. It's literally just he thinks better of it. He's like, I'm about to think about, should I tell him about the dog and that I'm still in danger? But Lupin already kind of addressed the Trelawney situations. It's just like, "Mm, I won't, okay. I think that's important though, because- it shows how Lupin thinks about divination, much like a lot of the other professors that we've seen so far. And it, it, to your point, Eric, it probably stops him in his tracks from going into more about what happened because Lupin has already been dismissive of Trelawney and, and, and her teachings. So do we think that Lupin and McGonagall had a conversation where Lupin's like, Harry seems a little less active or a little less, like, is everything going okay with him? And then McGonagall's like, oh, yeah, Sybil said he was going to die this year. Like, because McGonagall, of course, knows Lupin's connection to Harry and knows that Lupin would want to uncle him or whatever. But Lupin has not made that known to anyone else. Why would McGonagall tell Lupin about Trelawney? Staff room banter. I don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I Sibyl's don't know made either. a new prediction. Harry's going to be dying. Because for me, I like to imagine that McGonagall was like coming to Lupin with maybe some 
you know, emotional news of like, you should, you should look into Harry's well-being, kind of putting that on Lupin, even though Lupin's not prepared to do that or wanting to do that himself. I just think there's a staff room pool on like what kid she's going to predict their death this year. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see and that. And she never goes sure. to the staff room, so she'll never see it, but it's right on the wall. I wonder if she uh, picked Cedric. Oh, wow. Too soon. Wow. Literally too soon. Oh, yeah. We could talk about that next book. So it is Halloween and nothing goes right on Halloween. Right, Micah? No. uh, Well, you could argue that in the first book it does because it's really when the trio is formed officially. But uh, it's the theme of big events happening on Halloween in the Harry Potter series. And Prisoner of Azkaban is no different with Sirius Black breaking into or attempting to break into Gryffindor Tower. And this jumping back to something I I hinted at earlier, would anyone else have preferred to see this occur while the students were off at Hogsmeade for the day? Because it would have been a nice way for JKR to stick it to McGonagall for not allowing Harry to go to Hogsmeade, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it 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 says something that Sirius Black like, here's the thing. I think he's because he has no malice toward the students and they don't know that it's interesting to know when, like what time of day he attacks, because like the next time what he's over Ron's bed in the middle of the night, it's just like he's not drawing attention to himself. And it's because he just wants to succeed in his mission. But everyone else interprets it as he wants to, like, get get to Harry and wants to cause the most mayhem possible. Mm-hmm. Like I would have preferred it happen during, like, Hogsmeade for those reasons, but I also think that Sirius knows that Scabbers is probably in Hogsmeade, not at the castle at that point, because he knows mm. from the Daily Prophet that Scabbers is Ron's rat. Mm-hmm. So it's probably where Ron is, unless Ron just like keeps him on his bed when he goes places. I don't know. You sleep tight here while I'm away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't it implied that he does when they're when they go to Herbology, and Hermione asks how Scabbers is? Ron says he's laying at the foot of my bed shaking. Does Ron just leave him there? Oh, oh, so yeah. is that why Sirius went to Gryffindor Tower when no one else was there? They were all at the feast. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And, and let's not forget, I'm not sure if it's already happening, but there is communication going on between Crookshanks and Sirius. That's right. So perhaps Crookshanks is somehow communicating where Scabbers is too serious. Okay, yeah. Right, because eventually you start seeing Crookshanks go hanging. Like Harry looks out the window and starts seeing a black dog with Crookshanks. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, we will get to that in the episodes ahead. And of course, the attack on the fat lady's portrait is discovered and that will be investigated in the next chapter. This happened at the very end of the chapter, which made me think, should this chapter have had a different name? Flight of the Fat Lady. I mean, it happens in the final seconds and we don't even know why. Um, I thought maybe Flight of the Friends, referencing Ron and Hermione going to Hogsmeade without Harry. Or a very Hogsmeade Halloween. I love alliteration. Or uh, titles that might be intriguing when reading them in the table of contents. Snape's Solution. Or One Last Chance. Referencing Wood's final chance to win the Quidditch Cup. Oh, yeah. We should give Oliver Wood a a chapter. That would be really cool. Mm. I'm going to give him something in a few minutes. And no, that's not meant to sound. That sounds dirty. (laughs) You know what I mean. Get that vibrating broom out. Yeah. (laughs) Eric, you came up with some too, right? 
I had a few. This is fun to do. I don't think any of them are great, but here we are. We have a podcast, so we're going to say it. Uh, <laughs> Professor Lupin's Tonic, I think that draws, but that would obviously, naming the chapter, that would draw attention, more attention to it, whether he's being poisoned by Snape. Um, Bad Omens. I like that. I Yeah, that, that could work for a couple chapters, yeah. but I think this one in particular, because Harry's trying to lull over it. Um, and it would underline the fact that Harry doesn't tell Lupin about the dog. The last one, Draco is still bullying or trying to bully Harry about the Dementor situation. So I would call the chapter Draco Relentless. I like that one, too. That sounds like a title in, in a Harry Potter book. Thank you. Well, okay, this, move- this is an iconic segment that you're bringing back. We, we did used to rename the chapters. You know, I thought so. But I couldn't I like remember more that. details. Did we do that every week, every episode? We we did on the more recent chapter by chapter. So when we go- had something, right? Or no, I, I think we were we were pretty consistent. So I'm I'm looking back to the last time that we did Prisoner of Azkaban chapter eight. It was episode one ninety three. So it was way before we did our more recent uh, chapter by chapter. So we never actually renamed these chapters. So it could be something to uh, maybe bring back every once in a while. Don't we kind of semi rename the chapter with seven word summary? <laughs> no. <laughs> wow, this episode was March third, or recorded March third, two thousand and ten. So thirteen plus years Lucky. ago, and we're recording on May thirteenth. Dun dun dun. Well, we did our waiting between discussing this chapter. <laughs> then thirteen the, years of it. The episode was called Scandalous. I don't know what we were talking about. Scandalous. Hmm. <laughs> I think we played Do I that song know? during make during make the music connection. I think we played. Oh boy, scandalous maybe. All right, let's move on to some odds and ends. So we mentioned Crookshanks a couple times. Crookshanks pounces on Ron to grab Scabbers, and there's a classic cat and rat chase between uh, before Crookshanks is reprimanded, and Ron yells, "The cat's got it in for Scabbers," and he's pissed about the situation, very mad, and uh, Ron, a very smart character says there's something funny about that animal. Yep. He's talking about Crookshanks here, but he's actually holding Peter as he he's holding Scabbers by the tail as he says this. Um so it, it's like Ron, you're like so close. <laughs> so I just want to know like how does Crookshanks know that there's something weird about Scabbers? Does it go after any other animals? This is a good question. As best I can figure, and it's probably like smell. It's what Hermione says, right? Like, oh, he can smell him. But I think what it is more than anything is that Crookshanks is is tuned in to the fact that that's not a rat. It looks like a rat, but it's not a rat. Whether that's by sense, whether it's by intuition, isn't Crookshanks like part Neasel? Yeah, that's um, the key factor right there, I think. And Neasels have, a, according to the Harry Potter wiki, a very high level of intelligence. So they're smarter than a normal cat. Yeah, it just like Crookshanks can't communicate it, but it is communicating in the way that it relentlessly pursues Scabbers is this is an imposter. I don't think that it's like smart enough to know that it's a human man named Peter Pettigrew, whatever, whatever. But it knows that that rat is more than just a rat and it wants to like, like basically eviscerate it, but like like a normal cat would do, but also just like want to expose the fraud is how I read that whenever I'm reading these scenes. And I could be misremembering this but do we think that if in fact crookshanks catches scabbers he's going to take scabbers too serious 
That's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if we ever fully get an answer to that beyond knowing that Sirius in his animagus form is somehow communicating with Crookshanks. I do tend to subscribe to the the theory Eric was just talking about that Crookshanks is basically looking at Scabbers and just being like, it ain't natural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's something fishy about that rat. Well, because the first time Crookshanks does that is in Magical Menagerie when the lady is talking about how Scabbers is not like a proper, like, unless he has any magical, whatever, whatever. And then Crookshanks probably perked up at those words and was like, wait a minute, that's not a rat. I will show them. Now, this next item, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because we did um, already discuss it a little bit. But Trelawney's prediction did come true. One of them did. Uh, the one about the thing Lavender's been dreading will come true and came true on the 16th of October. And Hermione does poke holes in the prediction being accurate. The rabbit didn't die. And why was Lavender dre- dreading her rabbit dying when it was still a baby? <laughs> and then Ron comes to Lavender's defense, which maybe <laughs> might be a bit of foreshadowing. Um, he said, don't mind Hermione, Lavender. She doesn't think other people's pets matter very much. And of course, this is after uh, Crookshanks uh, chased Scabbers, <laughs> which was, I think, a great line. Yeah, it, it's Hermione just having such a strong desire to be right that she overlooks the emotional component of this in that Lavender's bunny has just been attacked slash was the rabbit killed? Yeah, it was mean. Binky yeah. was killed by a fox. Right. So I yeah, it's it's I think Ron has a great point. She doesn't care much for scabbers in any of the situations that we've seen up until this point. And she's known scabbers longer than she's known Crookshanks. And she's super quick to defend her own pet, which it's fine. But again, she's just completely caught up in wanting to be right that she doesn't even take the time to think that her words are going to have a negative impact on a fellow student. And she doesn't even apologize, really, does she? Well, I, I she comes in kind of soft spoken and asks genuine follow up questions. But some people would perceive the fact that she's asking those questions to <laughs> like a detective. To be, well, <laughs> to be completely inappropriate. Yeah. yeah, well, that's that's kind of the thing is like the impression is you have to what wait a day or two <laughs> before before disproving. Because here's the thing is like these two who are hysterical and I'm sure there's like some like girl against girl kind of just like you're ridiculous. You're stop being hysterical kind of thing going on. But She's also just not willing to seed Trelawney this win because Trelawney is the other person that has really been uh, attacking Hermione or getting getting her, you know, very warm. And so I think that it's just a failure of Hermione because Hermione sees this as an easy win and everything she says, I don't have a problem with what she says. It's 100% reasonable to be bringing up what she does, but the timing's off. Yeah, and we see other examples throughout the books of Hermione being very emotionally perceptive, particularly in Order of the Phoenix, we see it, and she's emotionally perceptive of other women in her sphere. So she has the capability, but in this moment, her desire to nullify and invalidate anything coming out of Professor Trelawney overrides that instinct. Yeah. 
Um, so two more points here. And actually, Kyle on the Discord uh, just said, by the way, touching on this, they do share a dorm together, Lavender, Parvati, and Hermione. So there might be more tension off the page. Mm -hmm. That's actually really interesting. I haven't considered because um, I didn't know this until reading this chapter. Um, but this moment with Hermione, where she kind of really tries to disprove Trelawney, is um, being considered by some to, to be a headcanon or proof that Hermione might be autistic. The not understanding the finer points of when to bring something up or when to question this, like ignoring the emotion side of the room. Um, but there's another point that was brought up on Tumblr. I found this post by uh, username Shmimzi, who says, It took me so long to realize. Most people actually resent being corrected and would prefer to, like, I don't know, preserve their ego instead of having factual information. And that the person who posted this is autistic, according to the hashtag of the post. But but I think that is scarily true in general. If yeah. you're wrong, you prefer not to be called out. And so Hermione is walking into a damn minefield. One other odd and end that. When Harry is in Lupin's office, he encounters a Grindelow in Lupin's, well, he encounters a Grindelow, uh, which he's later going to come up against in the second Triwizard task. Mm, the one he didn't need to get a permission slip signed for. <laughs> and um, they also, of course, later appear in the first two Fantastic Beast movies and, of course, in the Fantastic Beast book as well. Just some nice kind of world building and how some of these items carry over from series to series at the end of the chapter just a fun little thing when Dumbledore is surveying the scene of the fat lady's portrait um in the book it's written as uh what do you mean peeves said Dumbledore calmly <laughs> but then of course you go and watch the movie and what's going on Michael Gambon's Dumbledore is like get out of the way <laughs> And Peeves isn't in the movie. But here's another example of Dumbledore not being calm. So how would the movie have handled this if they didn't do away with Peeves? Well, I think the fact that there's no, because there is no sort of larger than life presence, aka Peeves, in a lot of scenes like this one, I think the director is kind of forced to figure out a way to up the ante in the scene because not everybody would be calm when something like this is happening. I'm also a Michael Gambon apologist. Um, Andrew, I know you're a Dumbledore <laughs> apologist. I'm a Michael Gambon apologist. And I understand the frustration about some of these scenes where uh, his portrayal of Dumbledore isn't exactly calm like we would see in the books. But I would just posit that that is not just an actor's decision that's also a direction yeah detail. yeah i'm not i'm not attacking michael gambin exclusively oh i just i dislike the direction as much as the acting here in, in, in those moments <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> i do like to think it would be funny if they have this because this is a dumbledore said calmly moment and in the movie when that happens, he shakes Harry. I love the idea that like Peeves would refuse to mention Sirius Black and then Dumbledore would like grab onto Peeves and Peeves would like carry him up the rest of the staircase and Dumbledore's hanging out. Tell me, Peeves, you know, kind of a thing. So I just think that would be fun to imagine. Yeah, I pictured him like chucking something through Peeves because in my mind, Peeves doesn't have a solid form. Yeah. <laughs> so he right. can't be slammed or shaken. 
One thing that came to mind, actually, when we were doing this discussion, we talked about how Snape prepares the Wolfsbane for, for Lupin, uh, and it, he also provides, in Order of the Phoenix, the Veretta Serum for Umbridge. So in both instances, he is providing the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor with what they need in order to, in Lupin's case, to function as a... <laughs> human being in Umbridge's case, interrogate her students. So <laughs> different ends of the spectrum, but definitely uh, connecting the threads moment. I love that. You're so good at that. I learned from Laura. So yeah, you're both very Aww. good at it. And Laura's been slacking. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank, wow. Thanks for calling. Eric, you're bullying me. Wow. I'm really sorry. <laughs> All right. I'm going to bail us out of this I'm uncomfortable kidding. situation. I am really sorry. Neither of you are allowed to go to Hogsmeade now. Oh, <laughs> Mike is not going to no. sign our permission oh. slips. Wow. Oh. All right. It's time for MVP of the week. I'm going to give it to Oliver Wood for having the conviction, the belief that they're going to win the Quidditch Cup this year. Good on you, buddy. You're manifesting. I'm going to give it to Lupin for not perpetuating old prejudices onto Harry. They could have spent that whole class session bad-talking Snape, and he didn't do it. Good teacher moment. I'm going to give mine to Crookshanks again, second time in this book. Um, still trying to wrap this book up early. Good for you, Crookshanks. <laughs> Efficient. I'm going to give it to Peeves for uh, number one for making an appearance, but but number two, I just think he knows so much more of what is going on in this castle than anybody else does, and I don't think he gets the credit for it. And I'm going to give mine to Damocles Velby, the creator of the Wolfsbane Potion. That's nice. a deep cut. I love it. That is a good one. Well That's done. That's a good one. If you have any feedback about today's very fun and insightful episode, if I do say so myself, or the chapters ahead, you can send an owl to mugglecast.gmail.com, or you can use the contact form on mugglecast.com. You can also send a voice message, just record it using the voice memo app on your phone, and then email us that file. We would prefer that, but you can call us. Our phone number is 1-920-3-MUGGLE, 1-920-368-4453. Operators are standing by. And now it's time for Quizage. Last week's question, what is the name of the fat lady's friend? The correct answer is Violet. Violet. We will find that out shortly enough. Correct answers were submitted by, here we go, your mom is a Slytherin. <laughs> Justice for the lady of generous proportions and a fire whiskey. <laughs> Hubble, Hufflepuff. Fish, Bagels for Buckbeak, Harry's Revenge, The Inner Eye Sore, Nimble Niffler, My Bogart is a fourth Fantastic Beast film, and <laughs> oh, there's two more I want to read. The Flobberworm Appreciation Society and The Spider Crookshanks Eats in Front of Ron. <laughs> Just next level evil. Next week's question. What does Hannah Abbott tell the students that Sirius Black can transform into? Very interesting. Next week on the rumor mill. It's not a black dog. A big black dog. It's not actually <laughs> that. Um, 
Submit your answer to us over on the MuggleCast website, mugglecast.com slash Quizich, or click on Quizich from the main nav if you happen to already be on our site, maybe checking out past episodes like the one Micah mentioned from 13 years ago. And just a quick reminder that Eric and I will be at LeakyCon 2023 in Chicago this summer, August 4th through the 6th. Listeners, if you haven't registered already, you can go over to leakycon.com and use code MUGGLE when signing up to get a discount. We look forward to seeing the listeners that will be uh, out in Chicago this summer. More, more info to follow. We're still working through our panels and our meetups and all that. We are very excited and uh, I'm looking forward to being back at a con. It's been a little while. Mm. I think Chloe's going to be there too, right? And Chloe's going to be there. It's going to be social media manager. Yeah, absolutely wonderful time. Next week here on the show, we'll discuss chapter nine of Prisoner of Azkaban. So look forward to that. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you get every episode delivered to your phone on Tuesday mornings. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to pledge to our Patreon because that's how you get access to bonus MuggleCast installments. You get access to our live streams, our exclusive Facebook and Discord groups for patrons, and so much more. If you pledge at the Slug Club level, you can one day be a co-host on MuggleCast just like Ashley was today. Ashley did a great job today. Thank Thank you you. so much for joining us. Thanks for your support on our Patreon. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the free gifts every year. (laughs) Oh, heck yeah. Speaking of that. Speaking of that, we've got one for you that I think you're going to really like up in Alaska. Is it a tattoo? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone gets a MuggleCast tattoo. Yay. Actually, that wouldn't be like the worst idea. Like, uh, like, you know, one you can wash off. Yeah. Oh, a temporary tattoo. Yeah, Yeah, a temporary tattoo. I like that hint, though, Andrew. That was that was slick. Okay, yeah. I'll see if anybody picks up on it before we (laughs) officially announce this year's MuggleCast skis. (laughs) (laughs) You get one now and one in 2024. A MuggleCast sled. (laughs) A MuggleCast igloo. (laughs) All right, done. Last but not least. Uh, leave us a five-star review if you enjoy the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if your podcast app happens to allow you to leave reviews, we would really appreciate that because it helps us get discovered by new listeners. So that does it for this week's episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. I'm Laura. And I'm Ashley. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> <laughs>